Before I get into my message this morning, I want to share with us the wisdom from the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy, in speaking about a similar political climate that we may see here in America. Again, this has been a week uh, full of politics here in America, and I just believe that this wisdom speaks to us. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Surely that speaks to us. Amen? Let's pray before I get into my message. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory, Lord. We thank you that you have given us your truth, Lord, that you give us a spirit that renews our mind so that we can discern and understand your truth, Lord. Speak to us this morning. Give us your wisdom, Lord. Allow us to better understand you, our role in the world, our relationship with you, Lord, and your truth. Thank you for our portion, Lord. We magnify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I, I've titled this morning's message, What's in it for me? A rather selfish title for a pastor's message, amen? <laughs> uh, so I, I want to speak to our selfishness today, but in a good way and for a good reason. Another name for the message, which demonstrates the truth which I'm going to present before us this morning, is living with the wisdom of God and being beyond blessed. So last week we spoke about the renewing of our minds through the Spirit of God as the origin of our godliness. We noted that this comes from within, the spiritual work being done within us when we are rooted in Christ. It's not an act. No such thing as acting godly. Many of you had expressed being blessed by the message. Will anyone here this morning testify by raising your hand that you were blessed by the message of godliness coming from within last week and began, that, uh, began to allow that to happen in your life? Wow, amen. Glory to God. I want to share with us a quote from J.D. Greer in his book, Gospel, which I believe speaks to this reality. It is one thing to understand the gospel, but it is quite another to experience the gospel in such a way that it fundamentally changes us and becomes the source of our identity and security. It is one thing to grasp the essence of the gospel, but quite another thing to think out its implications for all of life. We all struggle to explore the mysteries of the gospel on a regular basis and to allow its message to influence our thinking. So that being said, exploring the mysteries of the gospel on a regular basis and allowing its message to influence our thinking, I can't think of a better system, so to speak, to accomplish that work by reaching the lost and making disciples than the local church. I cannot begin to fathom how we would go about exploring the mysteries of the gospel without the building up of one another, the edifying of one another. Can you? Yet there are so many Christians, sadly, who hold to this view and would call themselves Christians... To them, the local church is seen as man-made, corrupt, irrelevant, outdated, and abused. Yet in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, we read, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Many are quick to get caught up in the until the day of the Lord, right, until that day, gathered together until that day. 
But if we remove the God-ordained system that has fostered much of God's work in the world since Christ's time, continue to speak against it, and often to the discouragement of those who are involved in quote-unquote institutional local churches, we don't expect the world to get dark. Because again, the role of that gathering, the goal of assembling together, is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Worse yet, many who hold this view have the nerve to complain about things getting worse in the world and the failure of the church to do something. That's a bit strange. So again, we see the need for the local church. Prayerfully, you understand the reason you came here this morning and uh, you've come here this morning to uh, receive the wisdom of God, to, be, to reach that elevated understanding that is not man-made, that is not of tradition. Unfortunately, a lot of local churches do not do that. I get that. To further compound the confusion, far too many are conjuring up their own styles or interpretations of how we are or how we are not included in the salvific story of the scriptures. This ranges from futurism, which is an artificial way of inserting us in the age of the first century prior to the coming of the Lord, rather than understanding fulfilled Bible prophecy. Then you have the temporary ecclesia crowd, which is the church was only a vessel being used by God in that first century, those being called out by God. Another name for this would be unchurching, right? So I guess we're the churching folks, and then you have the unchurching or dechurching crowd. <laughs> and, you know, then you have the, those that are taking the principle of audience relevance to a place where none of the Bible even applies to us today. Fostering thoughts of hyper-preterism, where it was all fulfilled in the first century, only for Israel, only intended for Israel, and the Gentiles were only the northern tribes that were coming back. Deism, which is, you know, God uh, was very involved with Israel all throughout the Old Testament, very involved so much that he put on flesh and came into the world, right, to his own. They reject him, and then this deist view says basically he gave up. He just left the world to their own devices. You know, I've heard some say, yes, it was very uh, predestined and Calvinistic in the Bible times, but today it's more Arminian and we get to choose. Strange place to be. All equivalent to a deist perspective. And then you have universalism, which basically says, matter of fact, I'll share with you a quote from a friend that was said to me on social media. The Bible is a universal salvation story for Adam and his seed, and we are not of Adam. The seed salvation was of them and for them. I believe I've always had life and have never been under the guilt of sin and death that they were under. Their baptism corrected that sin and death, according to Peter. It's clear, their it cleared their conscience. This is life in Christ. And now everybody gets a life in Christ. All of that was just for them in that time. And then today we're in a whole different story. Just thank God that he did all of that. But it has no personal effect on any one of us. Another friend mentioned this. Preterism comes with the accusation that it teaches that since all things are fulfilled, God is dead except for the need to continue to explain the fulfillments. Thus, the preterist Christian can spend much time reliving and explaining the fulfillments more so than forwarding and living in the ordinances and precepts of Jesus as king and in the goodness of life, including extranatural provings and experience. One would ask, is this all just a history lesson? So, the point I want to bring before us this morning is that we are invited into a story. How dare we falsely impose ourselves? That's like being invited somewhere and then sabotaging the whole point that brought you there and then falsely calling whatever story you come up with the right one. Your narrative, revisionist nature. 
Some will even dare to call it God's story, a story they made up in their own mind. This is depreciation at its lowest. In Matthew chapter 22, we read a parable of Jesus where he talks about the wedding banquet. And at this wedding banquet, um, there were many who were invited. They were predestined to be invited to that wedding banquet. Yet they didn't come. Worse, they killed and beat the servants that came to invite them. So then God in his mercy, oh, I'm sorry, well, this king in his mercy that's throwing this banquet for his son <laughs> invites the, sends out more servants in it to invite those people that were predestined to come, and they don't come. Again, you see a picture of the 722 B.C. Uh, northern captivity and you know, the prophets, the servants that were sent to them, Amos, uh, Jonah, Hosea, you know, there's quite a few. And then you have the 586 B.C. judgment of the southern tribes where Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you know, these men were sent to, uh, those servants were sent to warn Israel, those that were called to the wedding banquet, amen. And uh, they don't come. So then this uh, gentleman, this king says, go out and invite everybody. Go out and invite everybody to come in. But the, the story ends with those that are not uh, clothed in the wedding clothing. Hopefully we all know what the wedding clothing is here this morning. We had a great Bible study talking about that white robe that we put on in Christ. Those that are around the throne, you read quite a few verses in the book of Revelation. Those that are around the throne are clothed in a white robe. They have put on Christ. Those that uh, have the right to enter the city in Revelation chapter 22 are those that have renewed or washed their robes. So we also see in, in Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul's wisdom to the Roman church is that Christ came as a servant to the circumcision, to Israel, to fulfill the promises given to their forefathers. And then for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. The Gentiles are glorifying God for what he fulfilled in Israel. The fact that he invited them and he invited them and then he brought the Messiah. He sent forth his son. Again, you could go back to Matthew chapter 21 and read the parable there about the tenants and, you know, you see a very similar story to he, fight, he sends out servants, he sends out servants again. Then he sends his son. This is literally the historical picture, the salvific story that we see being outlined in the Bible. So I say all of that to note that we are being invited into a story and we do not have the right to create the story on our own making. So I want to demonstrate two things this morning. The first one is if you began a Bible reading plan, or maybe plan to begin a Bible reading plan, as many do at this time here in America, you know, the new year and everything. But maybe you have come up short. Like most people, you have come up short. There's no need to fret. I want to impart some wisdom about Bible reading by utilizing one of the plans that we are using for our Saturday morning studies and on my show, Miano Gone Wild, um, online radio. Namely, that once we establish context... We can pick up our reading at any point and be inspired and understand his truths. No need to get discouraged if you need to spend a bit of time a day, maybe even then falling off of reading from time to time, but you don't have time to just really stay diligent and be involved with all the readings. Fair enough, that's fine. I want to give you a reason why you should not fret this morning. Also, another thing I'm going to mention this morning is we need a narrative contextual understanding of the various different details in Scripture in order to rightly divide the word. Once we establish that we understand our role and what God has done and is continuing, uh, once we establish that, then we can begin to understand what that means for us in what God has done and continuing to do through his grace, love, and wisdom. See, but it's important to establish that narrative. And the best way I can see that we would 
do that is by building one another up, by coming together, assembling together. Each one of us has a different wisdom and can fill in the blanks, so to speak. Um, I thank one of the women at our church for giving me that piece of wisdom. We can fill in the blanks for each other. You see, that's, that's the key. That is the key. Hebrews 10, 24, you know, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and dare I say how to understand the narrative. So let's jump right into this here, um, our one-year Bible reading plan. In our first reading, what we do is we start at the book of Psalms, right, the, book of, the books of wisdom, and they're renewing our mind by taking in the wisdom of God. Then we go into the book of Proverbs to receive some wisdom because our minds are now open, and then we read the narrative, right? We go back to Genesis or whatever part of the narrative. Uh, we do an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. So our first portion here is Psalm chapter 17. I'm not going to read through the entire text. However, I do want to share a couple of verses out of this text. Chapter 17, verse 7 says, Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand, from those who rise up against them. So you see, those who are receiving the loving kindness are those who take refuge in God's power. It's important to note here this morning. So we're not relying on ourselves, we're relying on God. Those are the ones that will begin to understand the loving kindness of God. And then verses 14 through 15. From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of this world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. You see, uh, right here we're seeing that David talking about vindication, wakefulness, being a, made awake. And also talking about righteousness. This is a re resurrection passage in our Bible. Um, David yearning for the, the vindication that would come by being satisfied with seeing God's likeness. You see, this is a, a, a phrase that we need to kind of break down here. What does it mean to be satisfied with seeing God's likeness? What does it mean to see God's likeness? And a passage of scripture that we, kind of, we get a picture of this is in Numbers chapter 12, verse 8. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, we read about... Aaron and Miriam testifying against Moses. And they testify against Moses and basically say that, uh, you know, they speak out against his, his authority that God had given him. And the wisdom that is given to them from God is, how dare you speak out against he who has seen God's likeness, who's seen God's form? What did Moses see when he went up to Mount Sinai? You know, this is where things get strange because we're talking about God being spirit. So I don't believe... He saw his arm or his back or his leg. You know, what we're seeing is he saw his wisdom. When Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai, he was given the wisdom of God. He came down with a covenant for Israel. That was God's likeness. It was God's order, God's covenant, if you will. God's wisdom to this world. Moses saw that. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, we read, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So when Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai, wouldn't we say that he gave him the path of life? For Israel, the law was their path of life. It was the lamp unto their feet. David even begins to talk about that in the book of Psalms. So the Torah, the, the law of Moses, the wisdom, the old covenant, is now their path of life. And their, it, 
gives them God's presence, right? All the temple uh, details that you would see with God's presence. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, in talking about the renewing of God's likeness to his people, it says that, uh, that, you know what, let's go to the passage. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not yet appeared to us as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And in AD, AD 70, at the coming of the Lord, it was made very clear, made very, very clear who the children of God are, what God's likeness, his form was. He wasn't working through that old covenant any longer. He was working through those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. The Christians survive in the mountains of Pella. The city of Jerusalem is being shattered with the zealots, with the Jews that were, you know, obstinate against the wisdom of Christ, and the Romans, all at war with one another, all devastating one another, whereas the Christians were surviving in the mountains of Pella by listening to the wisdom of Jesus. And then in AD 70, it was truly revealed. One of the, what you might say is the Christians were changed. They went from one mind to another, to highlight that Greek word, alasa. From one mind to another, they knew that this is the truth. This will be the message for future generations. Let's go to see what Proverbs chapter 3 has for us. You see, all you need to do is begin to establish some context, and the wisdom of God speaks to us. Amen? God still speaks. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 33 through 35, just two passages here. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools will display dishonor. So again, we want honor. We want to be the wise. We want to be the righteous. We want to be those that are walking with God because theirs, the, theirs is the house that will be honored. So I want to ask you this morning, are you thirsting for righteousness? Are you thirsting for the wisdom of God? Or are you leaning upon your own misunderstandings? Where do you stand? Are you desiring to see the wisdom of God, the form of God? Or are you speaking against it like Miriam and Aaron? Where do you stand? Are you of the wicked or are you of the righteous? Let's fill ourselves in here with a bit of the narrative by turning to Genesis chapter 39. I just want to give us some historical context as we've been talking about. You need to kind of fill in some details here. And in my studies, I've, I've come to understand, or you know, if you simply just continued through the Bible reading here, uh, Joseph is sold into slavery. He has this wisdom of God that is given to him, and he tells his brothers and his father about these dreams that he had. This ends up leading to jealousy and envy amongst his brothers, so they sell him into slavery. They come up with this plot. They sell him into slavery, and uh, Joseph is you know, now carted off. Man, thank you for the wisdom of God, right? So he's carted off and he's sold into Egypt and he gets to Egypt and, uh, you know, things are going good. Things are going good. When he first gets there, he, uh, well, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, when he first gets there, the Lord was with Joseph in uh, chapter 39, verses 1 through 2 here. Uh, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the master, the Egyptian. Now the master saw the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight 
and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer of all of his house. So Joseph is using the wisdom of God. God is with him, so things are prospering, right? He's of that house of the, the righteous. He's seeing God's form. He's, he's being diligent. He's walking in the will of God, and God's with him. God's blessing him. And then, unfortunately, uh, you know, this incident with uh, this woman, she says that Joseph ended up trying to rape her and uh, set him up, so then Joseph's thrown in prison. He's in prison. Um, you know, you move into chapter 40, and he begins interpreting these dreams. You know, he's being diligent. He's, he's still using the wisdom of God, applying to his situation. I would imagine I would have just given up at that point. You know, you're thrown in prison. You've been sold by your brother. You, you know what? I'm not going to share my dreams anymore. Now I'm thrown in a prison. Uh, you know, maybe I need to just shut down. But Joseph, he continues. He continues. One of the things this reminds me of is that when you walk with the wisdom of God, things don't always go the way that you think they're going to go. Right? Th- things aren't always blessed according to your design. I think of John the Baptist. He used the will of the wisdom of God, and it, it earned him uh, to become headless. So, you know, definitely, you know, the wisdom of God is something that needs to be applied, and we need to rightly understand it and to understand how it's doing, you know, de- how the details in our lives are need to be renewed so we would see them through the wisdom of God. Going over to uh, verses 20 through 23 here in chapter chapter 39 it says so joseph's master took him and put him in the jail the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in the jail but joseph but the lord was with joseph and extended his kindness to him remember what we read in psalms about the loving kindness of god those who trust in him so joseph's still trusting in god and gave the fa- and gave favor to the sight of the chief jailer the chief jailer committed to joseph's charge all the prisoners who were there in the jail so that whatever he was whatever he had done he was responsible for it the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Wow. Joseph seems to be using the wisdom of God in the right way, and God's showing him favor. Amen? That, that has to speak to us today. We're establishing the context. We trust in the Lord, don't we? So then his loving kindness is revealed to us. In verse, chapter 41, verses 11 through 13 We had a dream on the same night, he and I, each dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth, this is the man testifying before the Pharaoh about this Hebrew youth who is um, relaying dreams. He says, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted his dreams, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. So you see, God is really giving, blessing him with wisdom. And it's, that wisdom is able to make the people around him favor him. God will go before you. Surely that speaks to us about the wisdom of God. Let's take a look at a New Testament reading. Matthew chapter 12. Instead of reading the entire passage from 1246 to 1323, I'm just going to share with us two verses, 46 to 48. While he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered and said, Who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. You see, Jesus is identifying his family. His family are those who walk with the will and the wisdom of God. That's the family of God, the faithfulness, the people of God that put their trust in the Lord and therefore become blessed. Because they put their trust in God and his loving kindness is revealed to them. 
Moving into chapter 13, we see that continually this, this par- these parables are being brought forth. And we read the parable of the sower. The sower goes out, he sows seed, and it lands in different areas. In many areas, that, that seed is taken away. So this is basically a picture of the wisdom of God, how God distributes the wisdom of God. He gives it liberally, but unfortunately, the seed for some falls on bad ground and it gets taken away. You know, uh, the bird might sweep up the, or the, the gang of cats around here at the church, we have a gang of cats. The, the cat might come and steal the seeds. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's, that's the picture that we're getting is that the wisdom is given. But the last one is very important. It says, the sower be, uh, being explained here in verse 23, chapter 13, verse 23. And the one on whom the seed was sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. God gives the seed that falls on good soil. Again, this is ironically a picture of election, that good soil that has been prepared by God to grow up and to, to be fruitful, to display godliness, as we talked about last week. And then let's look at a couple things here in chapter 13. I'm sorry, I want to move us into uh, chapter 14 here real quickly and uh, illustrate a point. In chapter 14, we see uh, Jesus beckons Simon Peter to come and walk on water. And uh, Simon Peter immediately knows that the Lord would challenge him. And the Lord would challenge him to, to get out, to do something seemingly impossible. And he, he gets out and he, Jesus says, come, come, get out of the boat, Simon Peter, come to me. And Simon Peter gets out of the boat. He begins to walk on water. And then all of a sudden, I imagine, he began to think, man, look at me. Look what I'm doing. Look at how well I could do this trick. And he began to sink. He looked at it, all the things around him and began to sink because he was relying on what? His own strength. His own strength, his own wisdom, rather than the wisdom of God. How often do we, um, you know, first off, there's a couple things this speaks to us. This speaks to us that God will go before us and God could do things that are impossible for us. But if we trust in the wisdom of God and we allow him to go before us and we put our trust in him and allow him to reveal his loving kindness to us, we know that he will go before us. He will give us a life of being beyond blessed when we apply the wisdom of God. So in understanding that, the next thing we see in this picture is that Simon Peter doesn't give excuses to get out of the boat. He knows that the Lord would challenge him. And I know that speaks to somebody this morning that, you know, how many of us look at the obstacles before we just look at applying the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God does not look at the obstacles. The wisdom of God looks at the glory. Trusts in the Lord. That's what we need to be doing. Things with Jesus are always beyond blessed. They are always leading us into the proper understanding of God, the proper understanding of our social environment. Things of God will lead us to be blessed if we apply the wisdom of God. So the next thing I want to speak to us about this morning is I want to sum up a narrative contextual understanding in regards to uh, God's word. Is there a place for us in God's word? Those of us today, 21st century. Are we arbitrarily, maybe with good intentions, putting ourselves into a story that we are not in? Is it a salvific story? Is it a universal salvific story? Is it an elected salvific story? Who are those that have the right to enter into the gates of the kingdom of God at the end? Nobody, as some would posit. (laughs) You know, that's over. The whole story is over. Everybody, as some would posit, the elect, 
those who choose, there's so many different narratives that are being offered up. This highlights the importance of narrative theology. The YouTube series I'm currently going through detailing narrative theology actually highlights these concepts. Remember I said before that we have been invited into a story. If you remember that parable in Matthew chapter 22 and the details in Romans chapter 15, the Gentiles are glorifying God for his mercy in fulfilling the promises to the forefathers because that's the reason Christ came. So let's back up. I'm going to give you my best quick version here, a run-through of the narrative to show you our place in a very healthy way. And don't worry, the verses are on the back of your bulletin so you can uh, follow up and you know, begin to do this study on your own because I don't imagine I'm going to answer every question. I'm just going to give you a full outline, a, a quick narrative here to help you in your studies. So we open up our Bible to Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and what, it's, what we see there is that there's a picture. If you begin to understand the context, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, they were worshiping all these idols and false gods. God reaches into that ancient Near Eastern culture and creates a covenant people, Adam. And in that covenant people, they bring forth life. That's what you see, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. What you're reading in Genesis 1 is essentially called a temple text. It's an ancient Near Eastern writing that is uh, demonstrating the sovereignty of a certain god or gods. So in our Bible, we understand it's demonstrating the power of the one true God coming into his world through, by means of covenant. This lineage of Adam is going to convey this covenant. And we see it, we follow it through, we get up to the book of Deuteronomy. Um, again, remembering the Torah is not necessarily chronological. We get to Deuteronomy chapters, uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 14, and you see the reason why God called Israel, because the lineage of Adam evolves into Israel. You know, it becomes, what is it, Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abram, Isaac. Jacob, that's Israel, and then you get the 12 tribes of Israel, and God then, therefore, is dealing with them in a more corporate way. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read why he gave his wisdom, his form, his likeness to his people. And it was so that the nations around them, right, around Israel, would look to Israel and would desire their God, would say, what type of a God is that? In contrast to their false gods, again, knowing all the details of the ancient Near Eastern religions often helps in understanding what God was seeking to do through his people, starting with Adam, evolving into Israel. In Isaiah chapter 49, we know Israel did not walk worthy of that covenant God made with them, that if they obeyed his statutes, he would bless them. If they obeyed his statutes, he would go before them. They did not, allow, they did not offer up wisdom for the nations around them to see the one true God. Instead, they became a hypocritical people, and they almost tried to keep the wisdom to themselves and not share it with the nations, not dis give the proper display of the God they were giving a display of. So they fail, and then the prophets keep coming to them. Remember that parable in uh, Matthew chapter 22. The prophets keep coming to them. And then uh, Isaiah, prophesying to 6th century Judah, says that, you know, it's too small a thing. The Messiah is now going to come and restore them. Their hope became that they were not going to live that image. The law revealed that Israel could not do this on their own. So there was going to be a Messiah that was going to come. But in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 through 6, it says that the Messiah would come and he would not only gather the 12 tribes of Jacob, but he would also bring forth the Gentiles, right? Those that were supposed to be given the example, the wisdom of God. The Messiah is going to bring them in. He's going to give forth the example of who those, uh, how the nations, how people for age to age would receive that wisdom and be brought into that wisdom. What Israel was originally designed to do, what God is doing right at the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, is bringing light into a dark world. Israel was supposed to convey that they didn't. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 through 40, we read the narrative. We read, I mean, the promise of a new covenant. We read the, you know, within this narrative, now we're reading about the promise of a new covenant. 
bringing forth a, a new covenant for his people, a covenant that would also have a place for Gentiles, of course. E Ezekiel chapter 37 reminds us, verses 1 through 14, that there will be a resurrection of Israel, that some of those national people of Israel, that, that lineage, would take part in this new thing God was about to do. That there would be the resurrection of the dead. The Messiah would truly bring forth the resurrection of the dead. Matthew chapter 22, in verses 1 through 14, we read the parable of that wedding banquet. The wedding banquet is the consummation of everything you're reading in your Bible. Essentially, the wedding banquet is Revelation chapters 21 through 22. It's the completion. It's what all of this was about. God inviting people to the, into the presence of his son. That's all the way at the beginning of Genesis 1, because that's the truth. In contrast to all the other myths and lies of the ancient Near Eastern world, and so on and so on, even up to our day in the 21st century. So the Messiah comes to his own. We read this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He's full of grace, full of truth. He's coming to bring forth a new covenant in contrast to the Mosaic covenant. He comes to his own. They reject him. In Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 49, we know that the apostle Paul was given the wisdom to bring forth to the Gentiles, to bring the wisdom of God to the Gentiles. And we read about that in Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 49, where he turns to the Gentiles and begins to allow them the opportunity to come in. And you would imagine if you were a Gentile, you were ready for, a new wisdom, for some new wisdom. You've seen the, the falsehood of your gods constantly. So you were always ready to receive the wisdom. However, we do know that Matthew chapter 22 highlights election. Actually, Acts chapter 13, I believe it's verse 49, highlights election as well. As many as were appointed. We worship a covenant God, a God that goes before us in giving us that good soil that we read about in that parable in, uh, of Jesus in the, Matthew, in the book of Matthew. So Romans chapter 15 reminds us that the Gentiles are glorifying God for him fulfilling the prophecies that are found all throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah essentially fulfills all prophecy. In Galatians chapter 3, we, revealed, we, we read the revealed wisdom about this new covenant. This new covenant is declaring who the tr true children of Abraham are. The true children of Abraham are those that have faith, those that do trust in the Lord, that they have that wisdom of God being manifest through them and to them. And God's mercy is shown, and they are the house of the righteous, and they are blessed, unlike the house of the wicked. The true children of Abraham are not a fleshly people. They are a spiritual people that put faith in God, the one true God. Ephesians chapters 2 through 3 outlines how the Jews, the fleshly Jews, the Gentiles were coming to share in this reality. Essentially, this would be the church. They were becoming one body, Jew and Gentile, in Christ, Christ's body. This would be the body, the assembly, that would make known the wisdom of God. What Israel was supposed to do going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This church is essentially given the same highlights and details that Israel was in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. And then in Revelation chapters 21 through 22, we read the details of this kingdom. We read about those that wash their robes and have the right to enter into the gates. But we do read still about those that are outside, the depravity that is happening in the world, those that are not in covenant, those that do not trust in the Lord, those that do not have the wisdom of God. And we read the picture of how the church is essentially given the, the role, the job, to call those people in, to give them the wisdom of God, to allow them to drink of the water of life. This is the church, the ecclesia, as it is called in Greek. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 highlights that the church is called to make known the manifold wisdom of God. So in the first century, they were calling out Jew and Gentile, fleshly people, into the kingdom. My question would be, did it stop? Did trusting in the Lord stop? Did stimulating one another to love and good deeds stop? Did the wisdom of God being higher than man's wisdom stop? No, of course not. 
So therefore, us being invited into a story that's already established and us not being allowed to depreciate the value of that story by falsely asserting ourselves is also still very true. The Apostle Paul tells his son Timothy, his spiritual son, to teach this to men who will be faithful to pass it on to others. Sure doesn't sound like it was supposed to end. The people of God are a temple, are stones that build up a temple. When a temple is built, you don't just stop. Now the temple has to serve a role. Many people are building up a story that have the fulfillment being shorter than the expectation. That doesn't seem to make much sense. So what we're offering the world is a fulfilled reality. A fulfilled reality, the wedding banquet, which you read in Matthew chapter 22. That's where the wisdom of God is found. That's for those that have been called, invited, that trusted in God, or that continue to trust in God. So my question for us would be, what happens after a wedding banquet? Surely the continuation of a wedding isn't just telling people all that led up to the wedding and falsely wearing clothing that belonged to the wedding party, right? Some had said that it was go and consummate and make children and allow them, raise up those children to love their mother and love their father. Raise up those children to do good in the world. Raise up those children to have the true wisdom of God, that which led that bride and that groom to consummate their wedding. There's so many things that we could begin to think about, and I think we need to begin to think in that direction. I think we really need to begin to think in that direction. Wow. Amen. This is the healing of the nations. This is the wisdom of God is the healing of the nations. We, the church, have the wisdom of God, and we are called to make known the manifold wisdom of God so that the nation, so that the world, so those that are outside the gates would come in. So I want, to under, I want to challenge us this week as we leave. I want to challenge us that we would begin to understand the wisdom of God and how that leads us to becoming beyond blessed. That we would begin seeing the promises of God applied to us in their context, which again requires the assembly because, let's face it, we're, we're all on different pages. We're all able to fill in the blanks for each other. And then the next challenge I want to give us is this. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, the Apostle Paul says this, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I relieved from the Lord, received from the Lord, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So the Apostle Paul only had a partial fulfillment, right? He lived before the destruction of AD 70, before the clear change of mind that the Christians knew this is indeed the truth, that they need to put their faith in Christ. We live in that fulfillment. We live in that reality. We have that wisdom. So if the Apostle Paul considered this such a task and he only had a glimpse of the New Covenant realities. How much more should we consider this as those living in the fulfillment of what he longed for? Hmm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory, Lord. We thank you for your wisdom and your truth. We thank you that you reveal your loving kindness to those who put their trust in you. We thank you for the story that you have invited us into. We repent of falsely inserting in our, ourselves into that story or making up a device of our, own or, of our own origin, Lord. We ask that you give us an authentic spirituality, a spirituality that is true and comes from above, that is truly elevated above man-made traditions, thoughts, and creeds. We glorify you, Lord. We thank you for your truth. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.